Magavanan. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and it's once more into the breach, and this is probably the last time I'll ever be reviewing the Rings of Power series, unless sometime in the future I find out that the quality of the show has vastly improved and is worth my time. This is, of course, the finale of Season 1, Episode 8, so this episode, it's complicated in a lot of ways, because in some ways, this was the best episode yet. The story was engaging, the character dynamics were pretty good, there was stuff going on, it didn't feel like a bunch of slow filler not leading to anything, but unfortunately we spent, you know, seven episodes building up to what amounts to one halfway decent episode of interesting stuff, which still has a lot of problems. There are still some logical coherence problems in this episode. There are some serious lore breaks, which I think are extremely damaging to any attempt to connect this to the actual Lord of the Rings. And there are other problems. So, as usual, let me kind of put forth my non-spoilery comments and what I can put forward of my wife's non-spoilery comments before I get into the spoilers, and then we'll go from there. So in this episode, a lot of the dialogue writing is actually pretty good. There's nothing too cringy, nothing, at least nothing that stood out to me. There were a few lines that I was like, that seems a little weird, but overall nothing bad. The other major points that I would say here are the the focus of the episode is a lot better because in this one we get really just two main storylines with a little bit of a third. We get the Harfoot slash Stranger slash Ascetic storyline. It's the Ascetics is what they're called in the the um what do you call it? The subtitles on the episode. And then there's the Eregion slash Galadriel and Halbrand storyline because Galadriel and Halbrand come to Eregion and they kind of meld with that. There is no dwarvish plot line. We do get a little bit of Gilgalad, but that's because he's in Eregion, not because there's any Linden plot line. And we get a smidge of Numenor, but it's really mostly about setting up future stuff. We don't spend a lot of time with it. And so we spend most of our time in Eregion and a fairly chunky amount of time with the Harfoots. And that's most of the episode, which that focused helps it, you know, we get a lot of time with certain characters and get to move forward with what's going on in their character arcs, and their story arcs. And this goes back to that thing that I've always talked about with this season, this, well, this series so far, but this season at least. There's too many things to follow, and, you know, when you can focus it down and really spend some time with just one or two, it tends to do better in a, in a narrative storytelling type of way. You don't feel like you're constantly getting nowhere just going back and forth between different storylines. So that was an improvement in one sense. It wasn't as focused as the previous episode, obviously, because pretty much the entire episode was, you know, well, I'm sorry, not the previous episode. Episode 6 was the one that was pretty much entirely in the Southlands. We don't get anything in the Southlands in this episode, which means we don't ever find anything new out about Isildur. We don't know anything about Bronwyn and Rorondir that we didn't already know. There's a lot of stuff that just we don't even touch on at all in this episode. And again, that focus, I think, gives it some help. But as I mentioned, there are still some logic coherence problems, some of which carry over from the previous episode. 
This is kind of spoilers, but not really, because we already talked about it last time. Galadriel tells, you know, everybody that she's going to take Halbrand to the elves for elvish medicine to heal his wound, which is so bad that he can ride a horse. And sure enough, pretty much at the beginning of this episode, he he and she are galloping, and we get another nice slow-mo galloping moment with Galadriel, which seems so pointless at this stage. Um... And they're literally galloping, and when they arrive, Galadriel makes a comment that they've ridden for six days without rest. Now, come on. A guy with a bad wound that needs elvish medicine because no human healer can heal him isn't going to survive six days galloping. <laughs> it's just... I'll come to more of that later, but that's just one of those kind of logical coherence problems. It's like, this just doesn't make sense. And then, as I mentioned, of course, we do have some serious lore-breaking stuff, and that has a very strong connection to what I said earlier about there being kind of this rushed finale. It's like we had all this build-up that was so slow and ponderous and didn't get us anywhere, and in this one episode, they just rush everything to this point where it's like, I really expected some of that stuff to not even happen in this season. It's... You know, they they end up doing things in this episode that I was like, I really anticipated that would come at some point later by now because y'all had spent so much time not doing anything about that. And it, it does things that are just disappointing. And I'll probably do a completely separate video where I'm kind of recapping the season as a whole and make that a... It's, it's going to be kind of the video that I do with my wife, with her answering some of the viewers' questions out there. Any of those questions, I'm going to put in a video with some th thoughts of my own, just looking back at the season as a whole. And I'll get more into what I mean by the disappointment, but I'll touch on it here as well. So those are kind of my main thoughts overall. Let me talk a little bit about my wife's comments, at least as far as I can without getting into spoilers. So one comment that my wife made was that she actually was engaged with this episode and had to force herself to stop watching and go to bed. She stays up later than I do. I don't stay up late to watch this show because I'm an early bird. She's a night owl, so she actually catches a little bit of it before I do. <laughs> but she mentioned that she actually was engaged enough in the episode to want to keep watching it. And this goes back to what I said about the narrative and the characters being a little more engaging because of the focus and because they actually do things in this episode that are interesting. It's not just, you know, meandering about and not really accomplishing anything and just kind of creating more mystery boxes and not really ever opening them. <laughs> uh, so that was one comment she had. She also said that she still really doesn't like Galadriel, and she has a lot of reasons for that, which we'll have to wait for the the spoiler stuff, but I have the same exact thoughts pretty much, so it'll get covered one way or the other. But basically, she's just very prideful and doesn't ever admit mistakes is what it comes down to. And that's, you know, that's a thing that's been Galadriel's character for this entire season is she's an insufferable, prideful person who just cannot get anything. She doesn't ever think of anybody but herself, her own goals and anything else. It's just her, her, her. And if you get in her way, she might just knife you in the street. I mean, that's pretty much her character. And she's never been likable as a result. She came close to being likable in the previous episode when she was talking to Theo and doing some stuff with him, but that was very short-lived. And we get right back to 
not-so-nice Galadriel in this episode, but it's in a different kind of way, which we'll get to in the spoilers. She also mentioned that while the, the episode, well, not the episode, the season as a whole seemed really kind of grand, the story just didn't flow well. And also she mentioned, and this doesn't really get into spoilers, but at one point, Nori, her little sister, comes up and hugs her for reasons that are kind of spoilers. Uh, and my wife was like, wait, Nori has a sister? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, she's popped up a few times, but, I mean, it's just barely. And this, again, is one of those things. And, th- like, I didn't even miss a Sildur in this episode until it was over and I had a chance to think about it. And I was like, wait a minute, they never went back to a Sildur. I really thought they would at least show him and show that he's alive in this episode or something. No, they didn't bother. And I didn't even think of it because nobody cares. And nobody cares about Nori's sister because she's had all of five minutes of screen time total and nobody knows a darn thing about her. It's just, you know, this is part of the problem with this show. They've introduced too many characters, most of whom which, you know, just don't have anything to do. They're just there. They're, they don't have any particular role in the story. Like, we're supposed to be invested in all this stuff and get emotionally tied up in how these things are going down. And it's like, Nori and her sister having an emotional moment does not matter to us as the audience because... My wife didn't even know she had a sister. <laughs> that's how bad it is. So that's that's kind of all I can get into from my wife's comments without getting into spoilers. So we're going to have to get into that now. So I'm going to start actually with the Harfoots and get through the interesting stuff with them. And then I'm going to cover Numenor, which is really brief. And then I'm going to save the meat of this, which is a Regian, for last. Because that's really where most of the action is. The Harfoot storyline starts off with us watching the stranger walk along, and he's going wherever he's going, and he's still holding the apple that Nori gave him. And he's walking along, and he ends up dropping the apple, and then he sees this figure that's got like a shawl or a cloak or something pick up the apple and walk off, so he starts to follow. And then finally kind of catches up, and the person looks, and it looks like Nori, but of course it's not Nori, it's the head ascetic, who is, you know, the androgynous looking one with the big staff and whatever. And what comes of all this is the ascetics think that the stranger is Sauron. And they start trying to convince him that he's Sauron and like trying to restore his memories. And they say things like, you know, your mind has been, I forget the exact word they use, but basically it's been like blocked by somebody. And of course, this whole time I'm just sitting here going, this idea that this would be Sauron doesn't even make any sense. Why would you think that this person is Sauron? I just don't understand. And of course, we're never given any reason to understand. These ascetics came out of nowhere. We have no background on them, no nothing, don't know who they are, don't know why they're doing what they're doing. We know nothing. And so we're just supposed to follow along and for whatever reason they think he's Sauron, well, they think he's Sauron. Well, they start talking more and more and eventually get to this point where they're talking about how he's going to become more powerful as he unlocks his memories and all this other stuff. And at some point, he starts to get upset. And it it's more not so much upset at them for making the suggestion that he's Sauron, but just like the ideas that they're giving him he doesn't really like. And so he starts to get upset and the wind starts moving like it sometimes does when he gets upset. And as a result, they end up Kind of in a fight, actually. <laughs> the the ascetics have to kind of magically fight the stranger 
in order to basically calm him down. And eventually, after a while, the main ascetic with the staff knocks him out by throwing him up against a rock wall. And they, one of them says, like, okay, tie him up. You know, we got to tie him up until he remembers who he is. And they literally tie him between two trees. And, of course, this whole time, and my wife had the same notion, so here's one of her comments and mine at the same time, is like, if this really is Sauron, he's going to be so mad when he realizes what you've done to him and who he is that he's probably going to wipe you out because that's that's the kind of thing Sauron would do. Uh, <laughs> so it was just kind of funny because they're, like, totally mistreating the guy, thinking that he is their really super powerful boss. It's like, how do you think this is going to go down? Um, anyway, they tie him up, and then next thing what we see is the the four Harfoots who went off on the journey, which is Nori, Poppy, no, not Poppy, Nori, Malva, and Nori's mom, who's Marigold, and uh, Sadduk. They're all watching, and they're trying to plan how they're going to get um, the stranger out of the situation. So, the ascetics walk off at some point, and I think it was kind of in response to like a noise, like they went to investigate something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, and I think it was a distraction intentionally, but anyway, they wander in. Sadik and I think Nori are the two who go in to try to untie the stranger. And then while they're doing it, oh, fooled you again. The stranger is the ascetic because they knew the Harfoots were there. Um, so they end up starting a fight with the ascetic now with the Harfoots. Now, the stupid thing about this is if the Harfoots, I mean, I'm sorry, if the ascetic had a hard time beating the stranger, but managed to beat the stranger who has magic and can fight back, and he did fight back, legitimately, like magically, how hard could it be to beat the Harfoots? I mean, there's four of them, and they have no magic power, but of course, there's this long, drawn-out fight scene. One of the ascetics is apparently a knife-throwing person, because that's all she does, is like throw knives, and she gets Sadduk in like probably the lower ribs, I'm guessing. I wasn't really sure where he got her, where she got him, but hits him while he's still over there, and it's just kind of like, okay, well, Sadik's a goner, but he's not yet. Uh, <laughs> but they keep fighting, and eventually, the main ascetic loses her staff and starts creating fire everywhere again. Which two of the other, I think it was Malva and um, Marigold, were like throwing rocks. Uh, at them from the trees and so she starts blowing fire up in there and all over the place and it's like this is like the worst strategy for trying to kill these harfoots like why are you even worried about the stupid rocks just blow them out of the trees onto their backs and kill them like you literally just blew the stranger around over and over you couldn't do it to the harfoots but you know plot we got to have this for plot right anyway it continues on and on and the four harfoots end up back together at some point or at least three of them do. The other one is trying to wake up the stranger and get him to pick up the staff so that he can fight back for him. But Sadduk is up and just running around. I mean, we thought, or I thought anyway, from the scene where he got hit by the knife that he was like, and down for the count. No, he's up and running around like a normal person, almost like he's not even injured. And then the stranger does get up and basically says, you know, I am good, reaffirming to himself that he's not the baddie because I think it was Nori who was right next to him basically said, you know, only you can decide who you are. You know, the stranger said something to the effect that they've told me who I am and it's not good. And she's like, they 
can't tell you who you are. Only you can do that. So he gets the staff and does something magical which reveals the true form, I guess, of the ascetics, which look rather like ring rates, which is Peter Jackson all over again. Um, but anyway, then he apparently annihilates them, I guess. I don't actually know if they're dead or if they're just banished. I don't know. Whatever. I don't care. But, so they they do all this, and then Sadek very promptly decides, you know what, I'm about to die, I just want to see the sunrise, and I'm good. So Sadek dies. After Warren running around like he was basically not injured. It's just, okay, whatever. Uh, so that's the end of that fight, and then they all end up back at the Harfoot camp, wherever that is. Goodness knows how far these people had to go. And then they come back and whatever, but the Harfoots are getting ready to depart again. It looks like Poppy's going to become the new trail finder because Malva's trying to do it and doing a really poor job of reading a map upside down, and Poppy corrects her, but Nori is, you know, talking about how she's had enough adventure to last for a lifetime, but her family actually encourages her to go with the stranger, and the stranger has already had a conversation with her where he basically said, you know, I may not be Sauron, but I I know the certainty that I can't explain that I do have to go east to Rune, which is where the ascetics were telling him they were going to take him. Why he needs to go there is unclear. This seems like a hint that he might be a blue wizard, which reminds me, by the way, whenever he was about to kill the ascetics, one of them said, he's not actually Sauron, and the other one said, he's the other, and one of them says, Istar, which is a reference to the Istari, which are, of course, the five wizards. Gandalf, Saruman, Radagast, and the two blue wizards. So, it's it's clear the guy apparently is a wizard, but the idea that he's going to the east would seem to imply that he is a blue wizard. But then we get this line where Nori does in fact go with the stranger and she comes up to him and he says, well, you want to, you know, they're all waving at you. You want to wave back? And she's like, if I turn around, I may never go. He's like, maybe you should lead. And she says, but I haven't the faintest idea where to go, which is very much like a Frodo and Gandalf. Mordor Gandalf, is he left or right? type of moment, and he says, he, he turns around and says, well, there's a, a pleasant smell coming from that direct, or a sweet scent or something like that coming from that direction, so we should go that way. When in doubt, Nori, Eleanor, Brandyfoot, always follow your nose. Another very Gandalf comment. So it's like, are they just throwing these Gandalf references in there for fun Easter eggs, or are they actually hinting that he's Gandalf? Don't know! Don't care. He's a wizard, and he shouldn't be here on a meteor. The wizards came by boat. Like, and by the way, can I just point out that if this is one of the five wizards, what idiots in the Council of the Valar decided to send him by meteor so that he would lose all his memories and not know what in the world he was supposed to do in Middle-earth? I, I mean, it, it would have been bad enough if he actually was Sauron, because then where did he come from? How did he get back? Where have we been this whole time? None of it would have made any sense, but now you're just saying the Valar are incompetent. Like, they're just sending a wizard to go help out in Middle-earth to do... What, exactly? This is before Sauron has reappeared. It's not even clear we need any wizards yet, but the Valar are going to send one anyway, by means which totally wrecked this person's ability to do their own job. So, that's just really dumb. Nevertheless, the whole, you know, the reveal was at least kind of interesting, and it was, you know, there was... Action without too much action, and something happened with the Harfoots that wasn't just them wandering around and talking. So, you know, plus. 
Uh, a lot of people were joking that, yay, Sadik died, why couldn't the other 80 of them have died? I'm not that dark. Uh, <laughs> I don't hate the Harfoots that much. I just think it's an entirely pointless storyline. And it's also pointless because if this guy's going to go off into the East, like what is this going to become just an entirely irrelevant plot line and we're never going to hear anything about it again? Oh, this is why Nori's sister comes up, by the way. She, of course, runs up and hugs Nori and gives her a goodbye hug, and they're all tearful, and it's like, why do we care? We don't know that Nori has a sister. <laughs> um, so anyway, either they're going to have to continue following the stranger and maybe some of the other Harfoots to keep them relevant in future seasons, or they're going to have to let that go and this all becomes irrelevant. But if they keep following the Blue Wizard, it's like, I'm not against that per se, but a blue wizard just wandering around with a Harfoot seems kind of weird. Anyway, that's, that's just my take. Now let's move on to Numenor. So first we get this scene in Tar Palantir's bedchamber where he is dying. And Farazan is talking to a bunch of the apprentices in the Builders Guild about how they're going to build his tomb and these apprentices have been chosen to try to capture his likeness for the purpose of making his tomb. And Aarian, of course, is one of these. And then it shows her, you know, sketching Palantir's face while he just lies there, you know, apparently asleep. And then he suddenly kind of wakes up, and apparently he thinks that Aarian is Muriel and starts talking to her as if she's somebody else and says, we have to go back to the old ways and all this other stuff. And then she says, he says something to the effect that, you know, if we don't, you know, go back to the old ways, this will, you know, will be destroyed and all this, and she goes over to the staircase to yell for help, since he's acting erratic and out, getting out of bed and doing whatever, and then she looks over and he's like, where, where do you go, and he's up, and he opens this door, and he says, you need to go look, but don't look too long, because otherwise you'll become like me, and I can't tell the, what has been from what is from what will be anymore. He's obviously referring to the Palantir up in the chamber. So Aarian does in fact go upstairs and sees the Palantir and that's it. We don't know that she looks at it. If she does, we don't know what she sees. That's it. Meanwhile, Elendil and, you know, the rest of the Numenorians coming back from Middle-earth are on their boat. Elendil has a conversation with Muriel and they talk a bit about, you know, the path of the faithful and all this other stuff, which seems a little weird given that Muriel just called her dad Arin Zilladun the previous episode, which is not what a faithful would call him because that's kind of his Adunaic name and that's what the Kingsmen would call him, whereas he and the faithful would call him Tarpalantir. Whatever. Uh, but they have this conversation about what it means to be faithful, uh, and then there's a shout from up on deck saying, Numenor's in sight! And they go up and they see, well, they, Muriel is still blind. Elendil sees that something that makes him stop talking, and Muriel's like, what, what is it, what is it? And he never answers her, but what we eventually see is the harbor is full of ships with black sails, which in the earlier scene with Farazon we got as a explanation that the when the king dies, that's what's going to happen. So by the time they arrive, the king has in fact died. Now, this is all really kind of strange to me because everything we knew about Palantir before all this was that the people didn't like him. <laughs> they didn't like the fact that he was friendly with elves, and that's why he was basically locked away in this tower from everybody else, and Muriel was acting as queen regent. So, 
did they all just change their mind when Galadriel showed up and Muriel decided to go off to Numenor? I don't know, but apparently they're going to make him, you know, they're going to honor him in the traditional Numenorian way for whatever reason. But that's that's pretty much all of the Numenor stuff. It's really not a whole lot, which, again, allows the story to focus on everything else. Now we come to Eregion, and this is where the worst stuff happens. Also, some of the most interesting stuff, though. Like I said, I have really, really weird feelings about this episode. So, what we originally see is Elrond and Celebrimbor talking about how, you know, they failed to get the Mithril, and basically the elves are going to have to leave, and Celebrimbor's like, if only there was a way we could find to do something more with less. What a modern way of talking, but anyway, the point he's making, obviously, is how can we make this tiny little chunk of mithril that Durin gave Elrond to do what we need it to do for all elves, because you have to bathe all the elves in the light of the mithril, which is kind of weird. Anyway, as they're talking, Galadriel and Halbrand ride up with the slow-mo gallop and find out that they've been riding for six days without rest because Halbrand is so wounded he needs elvish medicine, but not so wounded that he can't ride a horse at a gallop for six days straight. Okay. Uh... So they go in, they, you know, have a conversation about, you know, what's going on. And we cut to Celebrimbor kind of being in his workshop, and he hears a noise, and he's like, who's there? Who's there? And then it's Halbrand. Halbrand is healing rapidly and up on his feet, apparently. Or maybe it's been a few days, I don't know, because you never know with time in this story. Uh, But anyway, he's looking for Galadriel, and then he says, where am I? And he says, this was Celebrimbor's workshop. He says, the Celebrimbor? And he doesn't know that this is Celebrimbor, obviously, that he's talking to, but... Uh, so anyway, eventually they do... And he does introduce himself as Celebrimbor and, you know, starts talking about it. And Halbrand kind of butters him up butters him up by saying, you know, I you know, really admire your work and I've never done anything quite that nice. Uh, he talks about the fact that he is also Smith. And they, you know, have this chat and it's... I'm assuming that this place that they're in is in the tower that the dwarves built, and so apparently it was completed, which means a whole lot of time passed? Or is this just the workshop that he's always had that... It's not really clear, but it's one of those things. It's like they do so many things with time jumps that you can never really be sure what's going on in that sense. But during the course of the conversation, of course, the whole idea of the mithril comes up, and Celebrimbor explains the problem. You know, we have too little of it, and we need to, you know, do something. We don't have enough to spread it around, because if we spread it around too much, you know, we it loses its efficacy. And Halbrand says, well, have you considered an alloy? Well, we can't do that, because then that lessens its effectiveness. Well, some alloys actually increase the effectiveness of the things that... And it's like, this is such basic metallurgy and smithing that you would think Celebrimbor, the second greatest elven smith ever to live, would probably know that. Because Halbrand even uses the very simple example of mixing iron and nickel to make the weapon a sword both lighter and stronger. It's like, Celebrimbor, of all people, ought to know this. This is not rocket science on a metallurgical or smithing level. It's really basic stuff, and he's been around for centuries, millennia, and he, he, like I said, he's the second greatest elf smith ever, and he has to learn this from a Southlander, like he doesn't know anything about his own craft. (laughs) It's, It's so bad, but, you know, we have to do this because plot 
I guess. So he's like, oh, well, what a brilliant idea. Let's try that. Then eventually we get Gilgalad coming from Linden, and he's coming to check out what's going on. And, of course, they have to inform him, this is all the mithril we got. And he's pretty disappointed about that, of course. And, incidentally, Gilgalad in this episode is also still a jerk, which I hate. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why he's a jerk, because it's just not worth my time. But, at any rate, he basically says, well, this ain't going to cut it, we're going to have to leave. And he says, ever since Mount Doom, well, he doesn't use the term Mount Doom, he says the Mountain of Fire, but you get my point. Ever since the Mountain of Fire erupted, the tree has been bleeding, all but bleeding leaves, and it's, you know, going to be dead, basically, before long, and we're just going to have to leave. And I was like, wait, how do you know that this mountain erupted? You're hundreds and hundreds of leagues away in Linden, and if Galadriel and Halbrand literally rode at a gallop for six days straight with no rest, how could news have possibly reached you before you got to Eregion? He could not know this. It's impossible. There's no way. And this is, again, logical coherence, people. The only way around this would be is if Galadriel, before this scene, told Gilgalad, oh, by the way, here's what's been happening in the Southlands, and he's correlating the dates and going, oh, that's when Mount Doom erupted. But uh, there's no indication that happened, and frankly, I don't think the writers are even smart enough to have thought of that explanation. I think they just assume that everybody in the world of Middle-earth knows everything that goes on everywhere else because, I don't know, the internet existed back then. It's not like these guys have palantiri that they can look in and see far distant events. And even if they could, he wouldn't know to look there. So, it's all absurd. At any rate, the point being, he says, you know, the tree is bleeding leaves and we've got to go. Elrond begs him for more time. Celebrimbor begs him for more time. What they're planning to do is forge the mithril alloy, whatever the alloy ends up being, into a crown. Why a crown? Because the circular shape will help the light reflect off each other and basically magnify to almost unlimited potential. And Gilgala's like, this is dangerous whisperings. It's like, well, what did you want? Like, you wanted the thing to have the light to shine on all elves. And how did you expect... Like, what exactly is supposed to be dangerous about this? We know nothing about the properties of Mithril other than it's supposed to save the elves from fading for unknown reasons affecting a tree for unknown reasons, which it it's all just so airy-fairy up in the sky, like it's just happening and there's really no explanation. And I'm not saying there has to be a concrete explanation, but even when Tolkien is vague about his magic, it doesn't come across like this, where it's just like, there's just this magical property and it's just going to make things better and it's just going to, you know, that's like fifth grade magic writing. That, that's not Tolkien magic writing, okay? It's just, it's really poor. But he acts like it's dangerous and all this, and he says, well, it, it doesn't matter. If this is what our hope was, it's too late. And he tells Celebrimbor, we have to disband the city, get everybody the boats, and get out of here. And he leaves. Uh, Celebrimbor and company, of course, are not satisfied with this, and they are, in fact, going to try to solve the problem by forging something. Oh, and incidentally, in this conversation... Celebrimbor mentions wording very much like Adar's words to Galadriel about the power that Sauron was seeking. He uses the exact same language. He says, it's power not of the flesh, but over flesh. And 
of the unseen world. And of course, Galadriel perks up her ears at this because she heard it from Adar about Sauron. And he's like... And Galadriel later asks him, or maybe even right there in that scene, like, who, what, where did you get those words? And he's like, well, I was consulting with my smiths, and um, I'm pretty sure those were my, were my words. So now Galadriel is really super suspicious, and her suspicions immediately turn to Halbrand. Because who else would have conveyed those words to Calabrimbor, after all? Uh, so she ends up having an elf who is in Eregion pull a bunch of records about the line of kings of the Southlands, because she's like, I want to look into this guy a little bit more. Meanwhile, Celebrimbor and Halbrand and Eregion, I mean, not Eregion, Elrond, are focused on trying to solve the problem of what they can forge and how they can forge it and all this other stuff. Galadriel comes in at one point and there, there's like a big boom or something and apparently they're trying to find a way to get the Mithril to fuse with or alloy with other metals and Celebrimbor basically says, you know, we put enough energy into that to, I forget exactly the term he used, but the idea is they put everything they could and they couldn't force it to do it. And Halbrand says, well, maybe that's the problem. We're trying too hard and maybe we should, you know, not try so hard. And Celebrimbor's like, oh, so like coax it to just kind of do it on its own. And I'm like, what does this mean? And this is going to become stupid later, by the way. Because you're going to see what happens, and it's just standard forging and alloy making. Uh, but anyway, this whole conversation happens, and so they're some way, somehow, making progress with the Mithril, and they're like taking little chips off of Elrond's chunk the whole time, trying to find a way to make the alloy work. Galadriel ends up getting handed a scroll by the same elf that she asked for the information from earlier, and looks at it and is like, oh! And confronts Halbrand and basically says, the line of kings that you said that you were from, it died out over a thousand years ago and it was broken. And again, it's like that line was broken. Peter Jackson. So <laughs> the Halbrand's like, I'll, I told you I took the thing off of a dead guy. Um, and, you know, she starts accusing him basically of lying to her. And ultimately she's going to accuse him of being Sauron. Uh not explicitly, but you can tell that's the direction she's going. Well, she will eventually say it explicitly, but it takes her a while to get there. But she keeps accusing him of all these things, and he keeps coming back with, no, you're the one that wanted me to leave Numenor. You're the one that wanted me to do this. You're the one that pushed this. You, you, you. One of the things that he says, though, is kind of weird, though. He says, you saved me on the boat. And it's like, how? I mean, not really. Like, he... She pulled him out of the water one time, but he was fine. He wasn't, like, dead in the water or unconscious or anything. And he saved her from drowning when she went down. So I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that. Um, but most of the stuff he points out is like, no, it's been you pushing this all along. Well, nevertheless, they eventually get to a point where she just calls him out and says, you're Sauron, and... She actually takes her dagger and just about stabs him, but of course he stops her. And next thing you know, he throws her down, and then she's waking up in Valinor, and Finrod is saying the same thing that he said in the very first episode about losing her footing, or whatever it was exactly. Finrod starts talking to her about Sauron, well, he starts talking about his 
mission or whatever. And she says, but your mission was to, you know, hunt Sauron. And he said, well, no, Sauron is actually trying to heal Middle-earth. And, you know, I'm trying to help him do that or whatever. And I don't remember exactly how he words it. It was something a little weird. But they keep talking and Galadriel... Initially, she didn't even want to look at him because she was just assuming it was Halbrand, a.k.a. Sauron, in her head. But then she looks at Finrod and she's all googly-eyed and like, oh, my brother's back. Um, But eventually he starts talking about touching the darkness again and also some of the other things that he says about Sauron and whatever start to clue her in to, wait a minute, um, this is not right. And so she eventually kind of snaps out of it a little bit and starts accusing him again of not being what he seems to be. She ends up kind of breaking through enough that the scene then shifts again to this time they're back on the raft. It's her and Halbrand on the raft and they keep talking and now Halbrand's being a little more open about what's going on because he more or less frankly admits that yes he's Sauron and he's talking about his motivations and he says when Morgoth was defeated you know, the light of the one shone on me again, and I'm just trying to heal Middle-earth, and she says, you mean rule it, and he says, I'm not, I don't think there's any difference. So, at this point, it kind of becomes kind of clear, at least, that the Sauron version they're going with is clearly already on the evil path, although at one point, Halbrand tries to make the argument, like, you know, you said I should be free of whatever I did in my past. I told you I did a bunch of horrible things, and he's trying to basically play it up like, you know, you're the one that said that I should not have to worry about what happened in my past, and I could move forward and be a new person or whatever, and Gladiol's having none of it. And it leaves it kind of ambiguous up to a point as to whether he's being genuine or sincere, or is he being kind of duplicitous about it. But I think at the end of the day, when he says, you know, I'm... I don't think there's any difference between ruling it and healing it. I think at that point, it's it's no longer really unclear. It's Sauron may have what he thinks are good motives, but he's a bad guy. <laughs> Sauron slash Halbrand. So they keep arguing, and he actually basically says that you could be my queen, and we could rule together, and blah, blah, blah. And they look down at the reflection in the water, and it's not Halbrand in her, it's Sauron in the armor from the first episode and her. And of course she's not having any of this either. And they keep fighting and well fighting, I mean arguing. And eventually he chucks her back into the water and she's like, she's tied up to that stake and drowning again. Or was it an actual anchor? I forget. But anyway, she's drowning again. And then she wakes up laying in a pool of water in a Regian again. And Halbrand is gone. Now, before I go on, I wanted to touch on a couple of points here. I find this whole section interesting, and it was well done in terms of the acting and the, the tension building and all that stuff, although Galadriel's angry face is just never impressive to me. I don't know if it's just the shape of her face or, I don't know, but like she just cannot pull off a good angry face, I don't think. At one point, though, Halbrand actually kind of starts shouting at her, and it's like, he's a lot more believable as a dangerous guy. <laughs> uh, it helps that he is many inches taller than Morpeth Clark, but whatever. But anyway, there's two points here that I wanted to make. One of them being, Sauron, as Halbrand, has been this clever guy, apparently pulling the strings from behind the scenes and getting everybody to do what he wants to do without actually being actively involved. Except, not really, because like 
it doesn't seem like there's anything that he ever did that really played into getting anybody to do anything other than maybe showing her the crest to imply that he was the king of the Southlands, which why on earth she just assumed anything about that when he's right. He did tell her that he just took it off a dead guy. I mean, like she's literally so stupid that she just believed what she wanted to about him, despite his own protestations to the contrary. Um, but one flaw, I think, in all of this, whether or not you want to buy into it, is there's the scene back in episode four, I think it was, maybe five, where Halbrand, close to the very end of the episode, is being called to the Queen's Council to determine whether or not they're in fact going to go to Numenor. And he puts down the crest on a table nearby, and he gets up and walks away. And then a couple seconds later, you see his hand grabbing it back, and he walks off as if he's resolved he actually is going to go to Numenor and he is going to help the Southlands and all this other stuff, right? So, why would that scene make any sense if Halbrand has been Sauron making all this up to fool everybody from the beginning? Because he's not fooling anybody by leaving it and then picking it back up. The only person there is some random Numenorean soldier who's called him to the council, and it's not even clear that guy's still in the room... But even if he was, like, who is that guy going to tell that he did this and that he... That's so far beyond the level you would need to go to actually fool anybody that the only explanation for doing it is that it was a real thing of, I don't want to do it, and so I'm going to leave the crest here. Oh, wait, I actually am going to do it, and I'm going to take the crest. Like, what? What was his purpose in doing that? That makes no sense. The other thing I wanted to mention here in connection with this whole sequence is Finrod's whole advice to touch the darkness. This is why that was always wrong and why it was always a bad line. It didn't make sense for any elf to ever utter. Because this is exactly the kind of thing it leads to. Is like, you know, if you're going to touch the darkness, well, you know, like touch it one more time and see what it gets you. And you cannot make any sense of this. And this is why... I hated that line from the first moment that I heard it because it's inviting people to make immoral choices to see whether or not what they're doing is really the moral choice. And then, but now Sauron's got you. I mean, this is the classic trick, right? Just, you know, just let me make trial of my plan, Frodo. <laughs> you start down that road and it, it doesn't end well. It cannot end well. The fact that this was displayed as some great piece of elvish wisdom from Finrod, wisest of the elves, is just like... Mm -mm. And now here we have it on display, which is so dumb because now it's like, well, now we know that Finrod was actually giving her really horrible advice and now Finrod's character's ruined too. It's like, why did you do this? That said, apart from those two main points, like I said, the sequence as, it, as a whole on its own terms, was really good and interesting. So after all of this, and she wakes up in the pool of water, she then goes back to Celebrimbor's forge area and tries to stop them doing whatever they're doing. And she comes in, and they ask her, like, where's Halbrand after some conversation? And she's like, he's not here, and I don't think he'll be back, and we can't ever treat with him again. She won't tell him who's, who he is. And, in fact, he basically implicated that implied that she wouldn't be able to because she's like he he said in their whole sequence like 
Are you really going to tell them that you helped Sauron and you did all this stuff with Sauron and blah, 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 blah? And it's like, you know, I could understand that if she had any reason to know that he was Sauron. But, like, why is this such a big deal when there was no hint, really, from her perspective that that's who he was? Why should that affect her so much? But she won't do it. And she tells Elrond, basically, you just have to trust me. And he's like, you're making it really hard. And he's well, it wouldn't be trust then. Because they had this conversation earlier at some point where he said, I'll never make the mistake of not trusting you again. And so she's basically saying, like, don't make the mistake you made, you know, <laughs> before. And it's just like, why not just tell them who it is? And it, But anyway, what it comes down to is what they're planning to do is make two different things instead of one with the mithril they've got. Reasons are not exactly all that clear. I mean, they give reasons, but it's just like, that. I don't understand it. Um, but Galadriel ends up saying, well, we, what we, we make three. And they say three, and she says, one will corrupt, two will always divide. And then Celebrimbor adds, and three bring, brings balance. And I'm like, this is another thing that's supposed to sound smart that actually isn't that smart two divides but three brings harmony like do y'all not know the history of arnor where it divided into three kingdoms and that didn't bring no harmony like what how do you figure because two things are like yin and yang and three is a three-legged table and that brings balance like that i mean you can pick that one but you could also pick other ones where two brings balance because you get a seesaw and you got i mean it's just so dumb and it's supposed to be a reference of course to the fact that the one corrupting is the one ring, and that's corruptive, of course. And we can't have two because we've got to have three elven rings, so we've got to make it three, and we've got to find a reason for that to fit. And so they just have to make one up. It's just bad writing. It doesn't actually make any sense. They just have to find a way to get there for us. And that's just, you know, that's kind of the narrative of most of this season is how do we get to the thing that we want without actually having to do a whole lot of work to just set it up and make it natural. We just need to get there one way or the other. It's like, ugh. But anyway, that's what they decide to do. So they decide to make three things. And Killer Brimbor says, well, the problem is I need, you know, the absolute purest gold and silver, and I need it from Valinor, because apparently you can't purify gold and silver when you've got a forge right there. I mean, what is he supposed to be saying here? That Valinorian gold and silver is somehow magical? Or that it's free of impurities? Because you can get rid of impurities in gold and silver from anywhere. It just takes some time and a forge. But gold and silver from Valinor, as far as I know, are not any different than gold and silver in any other place in Arda. So, I mean, I don't know. But, of course, this means that Galadriel has to give up her dagger that she's been carrying around forever. And there's some nice symbolism in there because she is having to sacrifice this thing that she's been carrying around for the good of everybody else. But it's still just kind of dumb to me because, just, again, does Celebrimbor not understand metallurgy at all as the smith, the great smith of the Second Age? Ugh, it's, it's so tiresome. So anyway, they start the process, and they melt down the dagger, and then they drop the mithril into it right dead center so that it looks like a flaming eye. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. Uh, and then the mithril melts into the molten metal, and it's like, 
So that was coaxing it? Doing what you would do to any metals to make an alloy? Melting them together? I mean, (laughs) that was so hard. I mean, like, what were they trying to do before? Create nuclear fission? (laughs) What? Ugh. I don't even know that much about metallurgy and smithing, but I know enough to know this is stupid. Come on, guys. There's nothing special about melting metal into metal so that it makes an alloy. That's just how you do it. I mean, anyway, moving on. And then at the very end, we get a scene where we see Halbrand walking back into Mordor, wrapped in this black cloak, still looking like Halbrand, um, and what his purpose exactly is is completely unclear, but, I mean, he's going to Mordor and he's Sauron, so we can guess probably in Season 2 or sometime later he's going to end up having a interesting showdown with Adar and take control of Mordor and all the orcs that are there because he suckered Adar into creating the perfect little haven for him. And then this episode ends with credits, which has a song of the Ringverse, and the song to me is very reminiscent of Gollum's song from The Two Towers, if you listen to the end credits song from The Two Towers. It's not the same melody, but it's kind of a similar style, and it just... It came off so weird to me. Like, that is not at all the style of music that I would put that verse to, if I would put it to music at all. And it just was like, it doesn't work. As one person put it, uh, I forget exactly who this was, uh, but I think it was somebody in the YouTubers, one of the other YouTubers, said something to the effect that it, it sounds... It could even be like a James Bond song with different lyrics. It's like, yeah, which is totally not right for the Lord of the Rings series. And I'm not the only one who thought it was reminiscent of the Gollum song either. Other people have made that comment, so it's not just me. Uh, But anyway, I just felt that it was really bad. There's a ton of other stuff in this episode that I could have gone over in detail, but I didn't want to cover it all because there was just so many little... So much happened in this episode that it's hard to cover it all, but these are kind of the major points. And just to kind of wrap up on the whole ring forging thing, one of the problems here, and this is what I talked about earlier that I said I would come back to, the whole ring forging thing happens like really quick at the last little bit of the episode, and there's nothing really about it other than they just do it and it's really disappointing because I was thinking we were probably going to have like a whole season dedicated to Anatar coming along and teaching them the craft of ring making and being all sneaky and getting the fall for his trap and all this stuff and no Halbrand shows up in disguise being Sauron and helps him out for reasons completely unknown and nopes out when Galadriel figures out who he is and then they just make the rings after he's helped them with a few technological issues that any idiot metallurgist should be able to figure out like <laughs> and so it's just like this whole pro- the rings of power the the show is called the rings of power we should have had this whole thing of Sauron disguising himself as the lord of gifts giving you know, his knowledge to the Noldor so that they could do this mighty work that was going to help them make more beautiful realms and all this stuff. And instead, we just get this little brief 30-minute thing of, and it's done. It's like, that's it? 
And and the other thing is the elven rings are made first, and by the way, Ninja is silver and the other two are gold, but all the metal was melted together, so why aren't they all the same color? I, I don't know. My wife caught on to that one too. Um but the whole thing is like the the whole process in this book is supposed to be that Sauron comes along, teaches him the craft of ring making, they make a bunch of lesser rings, which are just like trials in the craft or essays in the craft as Gandalf puts it and then they start making the great rings the rings of power which are the nine the seven and the three except the three come along later after the nine and the seven are done Sauron goes back and starts forging the one ring but Celebrimbor in secret known to nobody else makes the three so Sauron isn't supposed to know they exist nevertheless the one ring still controls them because it's still the same magical technology going into all these things but here, the three elven rings are made, and they're done for the specific purpose of apparently saving the elven peoples from fading so that they don't have to leave Middle-earth. And Sauron helped them with this goal. And now, what's the purpose of making the nine and the seven? Like, literally, why is that even going to be a thing now? Because the whole purpose of making these rings in the first place was just to save the elves. So what... And of course, that also begs the question, too, like, what magical mithril property is at work here? And, of course, this confirms that it is, in fact, true that the mithril property is a thing. That's not a lie that Sauron told anybody. That's a legit thing, apparently. And the tree dying is a legit thing for who knows what reason. Nobody ever... You can't understand any of it because it's all just so made up and ad hoc. I mean, ad hoc in the worst way. So, to me, the... Big problem here is not only does the story of the three rings get rushed, and now there's no real good reason for the other rings, but the lore-breaking here creates so many problems. Because the whole story behind it was the three were unsullied, and that's why they were safe. Sauron didn't know about them, he never touched them, he never did anything with them, and technically he didn't touch anything that went into the three rings here. Well, I think he might have held one of the gemstones at one point, maybe, but... I mean, like, he didn't have any hand in their making, per se, except telling them how to craft, myth, well, alloy mithril with other metals, because apparently that took a genius-level Maya, and, you know, some regular metaller just couldn't figure that out. But now it's like, why are the other rings going to get made? What's their purpose? What's, and why would you make the three rings anyway whenever you know that Sauron knew that this technology was being made and helped along willingly, gladly. At one point, Halbrand actually says that some of his help is a gift, which I'm assuming is a reference to Anatar being the Lord of Gifts, and it's just like, is that the best you can do? But it's like, if Sauron knows that this is being done and is helping out with it, wouldn't you assume it's probably a bad idea to go through with it because now it's probably dangerous? Because if he's gladly helping you with it, he obviously is not afraid of it and is probably planning to use it in some way because why would he just help you in a way that's going to make it harder for him to conquer Middle-earth? <laughs> I, I, I cannot wrap my head around this. And apparently this problem is solved by making it three instead of two or one. I just... Uh, I can't stand it. That's pretty much my thoughts a couple other points that my wife made that I'll touch on now that I've gotten to the spoiler stuff. 
She mentioned, why did Sauron save Galadriel in the water? It does make you wonder. Well, maybe it's because he thought he could turn her to his side, because that seems to be what he's doing, but why not even, why not just let her die and then, you know, get away with it without arousing anybody's suspicions, because that's the only thing he does, really, by keeping her around, is keep around the one person who could be with him long enough to catch on to the fact that he ends up saying the same thing to Celebrimbor that Adar says about him, and, like, she's the only one that could call him out on that, so that's kind of bad on his part. She hates the fact that Galadriel doesn't own up to this fact to Elrond, which I don't either. Oh, speaking of which, I forgot to mention, Elrond finds the scroll that Galadriel hadn't apparently dropped and sees it, and so he realizes something is up. Maybe he realizes that it's Sauron. Maybe he just realizes that Halbrand isn't who he said he was, but he doesn't say anything about it either <laughs> to Celebrimbor, and it's like, why can't you people talk about this? Yeah, most of her other comments I actually covered already in my own, and then she also mentions that Nori leaving and Poppy running after her and giving her a hug. That also happens. Had like a Frodo and Sam friendship vibe, which I think is very much a thing they're going for in this show, is Nori and Poppy having kind of a Frodo-Sam relationship. And again, it's just one of those things. It's like you can try to mimic Tolkien in these little bitty ways all you like. That doesn't mean your story is true to Tolkien or that it's Tolkienian in style or in essence or anything else. The fact that you can mime one little aspect of it is no better than, you know, some of the knockoffs who were writing in the 70s trying to recapture the success of the Lord of the Rings. That doesn't really work. So, anyway, that's my wrap-up for episode 8 of season 1. Like I said, I will probably never watch any more of The Rings of Power in the future, unless, like I say, somebody comes along with an opinion that I really trust and says, oh, they really improved it now and it's worth watching. Then I might. Barring that, I'm done. This is so far outside the realm of being Tolkien, as far as I'm concerned, it's not worth wasting my time with. So, it, the writing's not good enough, the lore breaks are just getting way too out of hand at this stage, it just doesn't work. So, in the future, the only other stuff I'm going to produce on this show is going to be the video where I'm going to be with my wife, and she's going to answer some of y'all's questions, and then I will also have a segment of my own where I talk about some of the just overall comments I have about the season as a whole. And other than that, I'm done with Rings of Power as far as I can tell from here on out. So I know some of you enjoy watching me rant about this stuff. And, you know, it's it's so sad, too, because in this episode, there were things that I liked. And, and one example of that, actually, is the idea that Celebrimbor was having a hard time thinking where he came up with this phrase about power o over flesh as opposed to of flesh. I liked that because it had that feel of Sauron being in the background, kind of just feeding you things without you really understanding what's going on and thinking it's your own. It's very reminiscent of what happens in the Silmarillion where Melkor starts spreading a bunch of lies among the elves and like nobody really knew that it was Melkor doing it because he was doing it so subtly. And that's a really great way of portraying evil and how it can corrupt you without you really noticing it and how you have to be ever vigilant. And that's great, except they ruined 
the whole thing by not having the whole Anatar with the Elvin Smiths for years teaching them stuff and laying the trap with patience and planning and all this stuff and it's just all rushed and crammed into you know basically a day as far as we could tell in the episode so you know that's they had some things in this episode that I was like you know if they had done stuff at that level for the entire season it would have been a pretty darn good show but they couldn't and they just couldn't help but ruin stuff and they again broke lore without needing to they've got another four seasons they could have done this the forging of the rings next season done it in the right order like what in the world do they need to not have that happen in the next season for so that they have to rush it here i can't think of a good reason for purposes of making the show build up to any of tolkien's stuff you had such great material to work from, even though it was kind of outline and skeletonish. It was good as it was, but no, they decided to trash it and go their own way because they think they're so much smarter than Tolkien or something. I don't know why, but it's like, I wanted to see that story. I didn't want to see this story. I wanted to see Anatar fool people for a few centuries, and then, lo and behold, there's this one ring and all the elven you know, ring wearers suddenly realize, oh, shoot, we've been had. Now we can't have that. Like, that that would have been great. And they have completely ruined that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's probably still going to happen. They're going to make it happen some way or other, but it's not going to be natural, and it's not going to fit the way it should. So, anyway, that's just, I wanted to put that thought in there, because it's like there were good things in this episode. There were things that I really enjoyed, but it's just like, mm, I just can't get past all the stupid stuff they've put in this episode and the rest of the season as a whole. And that's why I'm done with it. So this is probably the last review I'll ever do on a Rings of Power episode. So hope you've enjoyed them, guys. (laughs) That being said, of course, my social links are in the description below. Please check out other videos. Now that I'm done with this, I will be doing a whole lot more stuff focusing on really good Tolkien-focused content that has nothing to do with this show, and I hope to put out some really interesting stuff in the near future, so be on the lookout. Until the next time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all supporters of the channel, especially Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.